0: That was a little pungent. A little pungent. You guys wouldn't last a minute in commercial school. Mine smelled like roses compared to those...
1: Okay, um well last we left off we were talking about George Bond
0: and his Bond George Bond Shaken his, not stirred
1: his uh his dive was a little shaken, his ascent I should say it was a little shaken, not stirred.
0: Not stirred, Mish Penny.
1: But yes, hey everybody, welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. Your scuba diving stinky undergarment having <laughs> hosts old James and Brando <laughs>
0: Okay, you just remember this grave you're digging, because I'm going to be on you, if if any y'all <laughs> come up with a smelly-ass undergarment.
1: <laughs> um, mine were, you know, I, I, had, uh, I had that crotch leak, you know, so um, um, mine were getting pretty steamy by the end of the weekend, you know, uh, like driving home. Well, maybe that was you. You get a little bit of a, you, but, no, but, but they'll be well, well laundered by
0: the time well, I yeah. jump in the water this coming One weekend. time, I forget to... <laughs> I like
1: my undergarment to emit the fragrance of fabric softener rose and rose petals. <laughs> cuddle up to me when I when I slip into them for a
0: hmm. nice Great Lakes dive. It's not very rugged. I know that in this day and age, so rugged is like a is taboo is foreboding.
1: It is a little. Uh, it is a little foreboding to, uh, to speak rugged. of anything being masculine, a tough and rugged, and manly. Yeah, we don't care about pretty flowers. We're going to talk about some tough, rugged, manly <laughs> men today.
0: No matter how politically incorrect it gets,
1: because back in the sixties, you could be a manly man. And you could did smoke have to... a
0: camel and go diving, baby.
1: <laughs> and you didn't have to be ashamed of it. No, not like today. You could. Um, you could flex your muscles. You, you could, could <laughs> whistle at a girl walking by. You could. <laughs> <laughs> you, could
0: you could. do you, that. You could, yeah. you could do that. You know. Yeah. I don't. That's like uh, twenty years. Yeah, your ass is going right to jail. You Straight to, to jail. Do that
1: nowadays. But in the '60s, the U.S. Navy had a team of aquanauts that were testing the boundaries of deep diving. Now, earlier this year. PBS actually put out a documentary series called Sea Lab, and one of the contributors in this show is the author of that book that we were looking at last week, Sea Lab, Ben
0: Hellworth. Speaking of, you know, how things have changed, I think I remember seeing a picture of Jacques and his wife in uh, an undersea habitat. It could have been Sea Lab. Well, Jacques had his own undersea habitat that he was working on. Oh, okay. Was he on the chalupa? No,
1: he was on the uh, con shelf.
0: Oh, yeah, con shelf. That's right. That's right. Very good.
1: But I think yeah. he had a couple other ones, too, if I'm not mistaken.
0: But do you remember the picture from taken from outside? I believe it was taken from outside the uh, con shelf. I think he's smoking, and they got glasses of wine poured in there. <laughs> now Those are the days, man.
1: Old George Bond, as we know, was a, was a fan of his pipe, pipe and tobacco.
0: Oh, yeah. Cigarette in hand bottles bottles of, bottles of uh, oh my gosh there's a bunch of stuff they did there. it Tres magnifique. you see i don't care what they do these days they're so clean and <laughs> and politically correct that i'll take this any day well yeah no kidding women booze smokes diving <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> look how skinny he was holy mother of mercy
1: yeah i know he was a tiny man so
0: c-lab one
1: you know really started in 1963 with Project Genesis, which was George Bond that we talked about earlier, and Doctor Robert Workman. Oh yeah, you know, got together to see if they could get a group of guys to live at the bottom of the sea.
0: They did a a two-week experiment in a chamber. Wasn't Workman like one of the pioneers of decompression tables? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. dive tables.
1: So so he's he's the guy that came up with the M-value theory.
0: Okay. So and looked M at values.
1: yeah looked at old uh, Haldane's work and then was realizing on some of these longer deeper dives that the numbers weren't quite accurate and he, and he found that there were actual different critical tension ratios that he called M values maximum values mm-hmm. that different depths and different tissue compartments had they, they weren't all just the basic two to one ratio right that Haldane okay. originally yeah, yeah, had yeah. said yeah so he continued on on his work with bringing these guys back up and they started using helium mixtures in this day and interestingly enough back as early as 1915 uh there was a professor thompson that had stated that helium would actually be a better breathing gas mm-hmm. for divers to use
0: yeah i was aware of that over, yeah, the uh, yeah, history of mixed gas diving ago, yeah. is is not as it's not all as new as we'd like to believe and uh but it, to the scuba world it is, to the...
1: Well, it's still but yeah. comes across as being this
0: very taboo extreme gas, yeah. taboo mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at the science of it, it only makes sense. True. I'd agree. I concur. But there was a big pushback when they, you know, I don't know if you, were, you do remember, you should remember, in the 90s when one group was promoting the benefits of helium for deep scuba diving, and another group was saying, you're going to die if you use helium.
1: Right, there There were two very extremes because and, the, uh, the, the pro-Helium group was, 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 was bringing in... was a small in, faction. Yeah, and yeah. they were actually saying, wait, wait, this isn't something that we should just be doing on 300-foot dives. We should be, we should be bringing this in much sooner.
0: Well, yeah, but the group, the other yeah. group the was other still group doing had, the 300-foot dives, and they, were, and they were still going, no, you don't even you don't want even it need, on you this. You don't even need it for that. Yeah, yeah, that's... And, you know, I think there are still... I think the numbers have switched. I think that's a smaller f- fraction of the community anymore, those promoting the deep air stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. agree. I would agree. I think more people nowadays are definitely seeing the, the benefits of helium. There's more and more even recreational depth, uh, trimix classes available nowadays mm-hmm. to to get somebody introduced to mixed gas prior to doing a... 200 feet or greater dive. Lack of narcosis, the easier breathing gas. The the, the less density. Yeah, yeah, low low CO2 CO2. buildup. up. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Doesn't that just, I mean it it shouldn't get me fired up. A lot of things probably shouldn't get me fired up, but they do. But having worked through the time when uh, you were condemned, A for nitrox, right off. Oh, you're, you if you use Nitrox, we're booting you. We're taking your cards. Then they said, well, we can make a buck off this shit. Nitrox, we love you. And then it was the exact same thing. The exact same thing with the uh, helium. Well, we, we can make a buck off it. So we're going to embrace tech diving now. Then look what they did with breathers. Oh, we can make a buck off it. Let's promote it for you know recreational 30-foot dives. Right. Everybody needs a breather ridiculous i think my personal opinion it's a little ridiculous you know it seemed
1: a little bit like in the old days i kind of get where you would go the deep air route first and then you got to helium eventually in the olden days because a lot wasn't really known and accepted like it is today Mm -hmm. right so kind of like you had to you had to take your you had to take your lumps Right, Learn the hard way. Learn how to deal with the narcosis. Learn how to deal with getting your ass kicked underwater until you got finally to the point where you just had to go to helium in a Trimex. Versus nowadays we realize how much smarter and cleaner and better it really is. The fact that there's, there's people that are still going the long, hard, slow way of promoting deep air first kind of boggles my mind a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think you... I mean, I think you give people way too much credit. I think there's a lot of stubbornness, greed, and turning a blind eye to the facts of the whole situation. But, I mean, they knew the benefits of helium way back then. 70s, 80s, They the commercial, well, yeah, yeah. scientific, and military all knew it. And you could just look it up. Yeah, so, because, and, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: so these guys in, uh, in 1964, in... Sea Lab 1, which was this big, giant, orange capsule, which they sank off of Argus Island in uh, the Bermuda Triangle, basically. They were down there breathing 4% O2 and 96% helium.
0: At what depth?
1: They were at um, uh, 192 feet, I believe.
0: So that's a pretty good saturation dive right there.
1: So, yeah, 4% O2, 96% helium. Later, they were, they changed that to like 76% helium, roughly 20% nitrogen, and still 4% oxygen, which yeah, is putting so them at breathing a little bit over 21%
0: equivalent no, at depth. 0.27. Yeah, yeah. So, at 27%. Percent, yeah. Yeah. A, little,
1: a little over yeah.
0: regular air, I'm saying. So, it's slightly yeah. enriched. Yeah, and they, so they added uh, a little bit of nitrogen for the... HPNS issues I would imagine although I'm sure they're rebreathing there was they're there was an issue
1: and I, I don't remember exactly where it is mm-hmm. but I believe there was an issue with the with the helium escaping
0: yeah but just so, reducing it what would So that... by thickening up the air with the oh. nitrogen
1: I believe is why they Really okay is the main reason why they changed okay. I believe I remember I can don't remember exactly where I saw that Hmm. So what was that,
0: a, four, a 4% oxygen?
1: 4% oxygen. Now in... And
0: what percent helium? 20. Now in... Hel- oh, they reduced it all the way to 20? I'm sorry. No, 76% helium. Oh, okay.
1: Now in, in Hellworth's book, he says that the artificial
0: atmosphere felt good. So it's equivalent to breathing air. As far as density, equivalent to breathing air at 2.33 at a, So at 44 feet, something like that. Got it. So, so density-wise, it's like you're breathing air at about 44 feet. Yeah, pretty manageable for yeah, them to be down yeah, and yeah, working yeah, for a few days, right? Yeah, you've got to remember that period of that long of a time breathing that that much denser of a gas, I think it would take its toll as far as maybe you start building up you know, fluid in your lungs and whatnot. But.
1: So in Hellworth's book, <clears throat> he mentions that the artificial atmosphere felt good. No alarming smells or traces of impurity although that didn't necessarily tell them anything. The presence of deadly gases could be imperceptible until it was too late. The atmosphere was to be maintained at nearly seven times ordinary surface pressure with a mix ideally of about 79% helium, 17% nitrogen, 4% oxygen, and less than 0.5% carbon dioxide. A potentially great chapter in human achievement was about to begin. But yeah, so they were uh, they were down there learning about the pressure on the human body, ultimately uh, the decompression coming back up, and uh, gases that are going to be breathable as well as unbreathable.
0: Can you reiterate those dates
1: for me? 1964. Four, okay. So while they were down there working, the, the guys would do some work outside of this sea C, C lab. On long trips, they'd go on scuba and then come back into the into the lab. And they also had a hookah system for just real close trips right, that they, they would get down there and do. It was a 40-by-9-foot tube that they were basically living in, six berths, and they had six weeks of gas.
0: So six, that was with them. Um, they weren't supplying the gas from the top they,
1: side? They, they, no, they had they had tubes coming down. They had tubes supplying the gas, tubes supplying them with water. Hoses or tubes? Hoses.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking snorkels. They're they're umbilicals. Come on, let's get with the program.
1: (laughs) Coming down supplying them. yes. (laughs) Now, one of the things that they had to learn how to deal with was the high-pitched voice altering effects of the helium. Yes. Right? So they they called it at the time that it gave the
0: Aquanauts a Donald Duck quality to their voice. I think it's like a high-pitched Donald Duck. So... Did they just not talk to each other?
2: <laughs> well, they, well <laughs> in, uh, in reporting back to Papa the Topside, they actually had to come up with a helium unscrambler. Yeah, for the worst right. of those, those being made. Uh, Hellworth d- describes it in his book, at last came the sound of a chipmunk singing. It was 5.35 p.m. July 20th, 1964, and the Navy's first undersea dweller arrived, singing a helium spiked version of Oh Sole Mio as he entered the lab.
1: Bond got on the intercom and said, C-Lab 1, this is C-Lab Control. I hear you loud and clear. And I believe that is Robert Barth. Am I correct? Over? Actually, it was Lester Anderson. <laughs> the familiar Italian folk song was a favorite of Andy's and the irony of crooning his ode to the sun he would not be saying for three weeks must have amused him well lester anderson congratulations bond said were you able to hold your breath all the way or did you have to breathe some water the chipmunk just chuckled and said
2: you know how things
1: are bond could hear some falsetto muttering over the intercom and anderson called out the names of the others as they appeared one by one through the liquid looking glass
2: Next to enter was Dr. Thompson, then Tiger Manning, and finally Bob Barth.
1: As I take it now, all four of you are together, Bond said.
2: All four together, that's right, came the chipmunk replied.
1: Bond then quipped, if anyone else comes in, kick him out! Now, you'll be happy to know that the Aquanauts occasionally engaged in behavior that irritated the topside commanders, according to Hellworth. (laughs) They covered the lens of the closed circuit TV camera inside the habitat, scribbled derisive messages on the electro writer, adjusted their atmosphere without proper approval or made or made sorties from the lab without reporting their movements as required. Dr. Thompson upset some topside sensibilities when a camera outside the habitat caught him making what might have been the world's deepest skinny dip. (laughs) See, that's back when. Men could act like <laughs> juvenile idiot men, and everybody I, would just chuckle about
0: it. I don't see what's so juvenile or idiotic about it. It's just having some fun, lighten the mood. James acts like he wouldn't do that. I think he it would. He
1: probably would.
0: Old James.
1: So they were supplying you know, blood and urine samples up to the surface, spending their time underwater. Living in the sea was bound to have its share of surprises, as Dr. Thompson was harshly reminded on the very first morning. He nearly burned his lips when he sipped a cup of instant coffee. Even though it showed none of the telltale signs of bubbling or steaming, water boils and bubbles at a lower temperature at high altitudes because of the lower atmospheric pressure. As any mountaineer knows, under the pressure of seven atmospheres, it's just the opposite. A pot of water on the Sears hot plate didn't reach the boiling point until it was more than 300 degrees Fahrenheit. To prevent future scaldings, the sea lab crew checked liquid temperatures with a thermometer. Wow. Yeah, pretty yeah you pretty don't wild. think about yeah, that yeah, stuff. Right. So yeah. Settling in for their three-week stay, the Aquanauts added a few homey touches to their humble habitat. Barth taped up a couple of Playboy pinups to the wall, tactfully placed beyond the omnipresent eye of the camera. One showed a nude blonde sitting poolside, a pensive look on her face as she extended a hand toward the water. The gesture, the reach for the deep, seemed vaguely symbolic. A half a dozen books were propped up in the lone table, an odd assortment that included Rachel Carlson's Silent Spring, not her earlier work, The Sea Around Us, and a guide to the Caribbean seashells, although they were miles from the Caribbean. So yeah, originally these guys were planning for 21 days underwater. Right. But they only made it 11 before basically a a hurricane was coming right and they were like oh shit we gotta get these guys out but the 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 come up portion really is going to be the same whether they stay the 21 Mm -hmm. days or the 11 days Mm -hmm. because the decompression at this point is identical yeah regardless stay there for two years
0: you're still yeah yeah you're coming up at the same decompression rate well it's it's based on the depth you're saturated to so just like right here right now at sea level at one atmosphere we're saturated to one atmosphere
1: correct right, right. And and we lot, live here right a lot of people misunderstand that when they're taking a scuba class you know you you'll you'll ask them hey do you have nitrogen in you right now and they're like uh, uh i mean a lot of news, yeah New suits like mm-hmm. uh, i don't think so you do well, you do mm-hmm. and, I, and i'll ask them how do you feel? Are you are you low on nitrogen today? You, you think you could <laughs> use a little bit more? What do you, what do you, what do you think? And they're like, ah, I have no clue. Right. But no, right. You're, you're totally, totally saturated.
0: hmm Yeah, you have nitrogen, oxygen, which th- the body readily metabolizes the oxygen. But the other inert gases, which are mostly nitrogen and a little bit of argon and some CO2, right? You have a little bit residuals, well, moving through your body constantly to be eliminated. Yeah, all these
1: little trace gases, Mm -hmm. which are going to be a little bit different wherever you are standing on planet
0: Earth, where you know, exactly exactly what you're breathing, you know? But you're saturated to one atmosphere. Now, if you were to go up to, you know, a half an atmosphere, those... Inert gases that are in your tissue would want to come out because the, the pressure outside of the tissue is less than the pressure inside of the tissue. Correct. And right. And the opposite happens exactly. if we go underwater. We load in. Right. And that's why it gets pushed
1: inwards to the tissues. Until we get saturated again. And if, we, mm-hmm. if you went to 33 feet underwater and you doubled the amount of pressure mm-hmm. in your body, you could conceivably stay there for the rest of your life and you would feel no different really than you feel right now at sea right. level. Right, Because uh, you would would have the same Mm -hmm.
0: pressure inside as you have on the outside. And do you remember a time when it was two to one where you could basically, the rule was, yeah, yeah, you could just come up up. from 33 feet. It doesn't matter. And the the tables were unlimited at that time to a certain extent. But I think they've changed them now. They're down in the several hundred Right, yeah, yeah.
1: But the point being is everything's all fine and dandy until you want to come back up. But there's a point Right, pretty much after twenty four hours of of being pressurized, it doesn't matter if you stay thirty hours, thirty six hours. Thirty six years. Thirty six years. Yeah. yeah. The the time to get back to the surface is gonna be the same. Right. And for these guys, they were decompressing them by a crane basically, where mm-hmm. they were moving at one foot. Of ascent every 20 minutes, and this uh, went on until they hit the, like it, the 84 feet mark of depth, so and you're at going, that point yeah the, the, uh, the surface was getting so crazy that they ended up pulling them out into uh, a submersible decompression chamber. Overall, it took these guys 25
0: hours to surface, so that's one foot per 20 minutes right right, so you're going at six inches per minute. Or, yeah, 0. 0.6 inches. So almost a little over half an inch a minute is your ascent rate. Just think about that. It's pretty... Right. That's Very, why it's going to take a little while. It's going
1: to take a little while. Yeah, for sure. For Grab sure. a book. So they, they did, in total, 55 and a half hours of decompression.
0: Mm-hmm. When you think about it, it's not terrible, right? That's a, not a terrible price to pay for no. being able to go do what they had to do. And from this kind of research... You know the the military and the uh, commercial industries gained so much knowledge that allowed them to basically start the saturation,
1: uh, right uh, to the to the point where you know it proved that it a ma- man it. can mm-hmm. do it, mm-hmm. right? They can we can go down, put them underwater mm-hmm. for weeks at a time, and bring them up safely, right? Sea Lab ended up fostering a lot of thoughts of. Future military right. bases, or just civilization, even underwater yeah. factories. I know, and then like you got Jacques and the boys are yeah. making yeah civilization. We're gonna go live there, baby, and uh, uh, resorts and science reasons, mm-hmm. military reasons, fact underwater factories, like all all kinds of thoughts. We're, Why would we're, you want we're an underwater running face? around at, at the time <laughs> of, of all the all the possibilities because of uh, you know yeah. things like this and what Jacques was doing, with Shelf and what Sea Lab was doing. Even old uh, John F. Kennedy, president at the time, you know, came out saying that we are just at the threshold of our knowledge of the oceans. We're still there. uh, Yeah, Yeah, we're still there. Yeah, we we are still there for sure. later. In that Live Science article, Mindy Weisberger has a great, you know, photo of our rugged, manly aquanauts. Sanders Manning there on the left, Lester Anderson, Bob Barth,
0: and Robert Thompson. Let me ask you something. Yeah. So you have astronauts going out to space, coming back, and you have these guys. What do you think is the more – they're both risky. They both deserve accolades, et cetera. But what do you think is more risky?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I think you could easily make an argument on whatever side you were working on. True, true. What I I found interesting is when you look at the money that they were given – Right, these guys were giving shit. Yeah, right. They had like two hundred thousand dollars total, and then they t- they were collecting this.
0: returnables <laughs> to much. try to get this thing going
1: Vers- versus yeah. like the the millions that was going on with NASA right. for the space exploration. Right, They're like you guys just want to play around in the water. <laughs> Here is a couple of exactly.
0: bucks. Exactly. I guess my thing would be: I think this is has a slightly. Edgier or increased risk than going to space. My personal opinion, of course, I'm biased and whatnot. But they know yeah. the the you know you're only going one atmosphere, right? Right? Yeah. Versus you go all seven the way guys. as far as outer
1: space as you can right. go. You've only changed it one atmosphere. Right. So is the question of by reducing the one atmosphere more risky to the human
0: body and reducing it seven or to increasing it. But then, but, you, but it wasn't the increasing that would get them; it would be the coming back up, right? Right? right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I see,
1: yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the coming back up from seven, right, versus the going up to from, from one, one
0: to effectively a vacuum or zero right. or whatnot. But uh, yeah, I don't know. And you, you look at again, like you say, what they had to work with, and the millions of scientists. I shouldn't say millions, but they have teams of the greatest science minds. We just got some guys from high school working making a... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, these they, they are a, a lot of kidding. medical doctors in yes. there. Yeah, I'm
0: kidding. They had some, some pretty good brains. I think the medical aspects of diving to that depth far outweigh the medical aspects of going into space, although they're both complicated. I think they're both complicated, uh, but I don't know.
1: So Mindy said that in the 1960s, NASA's first astronauts... Tested the limits of human endurance far above the planet. Meanwhile, teams of intrepid divers explored similar boundaries in an equally inhospitable environment here on Earth the dark, numbingly cold, and high pressure depths of the ocean.
0: But you see, they ain't got no sharks out there. Space <laughs> no yo. space sharks, yo.
1: Dubbed <laughs> Sea Lab, the grueling program was launched by the U.S. Navy during the Cold War. Participants called aquanauts trained to survive underwater in a pressurized environment for days at a time. The depths that created enormous physical challenges. Over three stages, the sea lab environments descended to greater and greater depths. But with the death of a diver in 1969, officials decided the risks were too great and they terminated the program. And she talks about the long forgotten story of the aquanauts. In a new documentary on Sea Lab, or uh, in a new documentary called Sea Lab that started airing on PBS, which I I think you could find online right now. Cool. She mentions that in the 50s and into the 60s, the US and the Soviet Union were engaged in a heated race into outer space, but they were also eyeing each other's progress into the development of deep sea technology for submarine warfare. To that end, the U.S. Navy established a program to test just how deep into the ocean humans could go. Stephen Ives, director and producer of C-Lab, told Live Science, Ironically, the ocean is far more accessible than the stratosphere, and yet it's remained more of a mystery
0: than space. Yeah, you don't need a rocket to get down there, because you'll just sink down there. Right. It's It's so easy to get there. Yeah, gravity works for you. That's what you've got working for you. That's the hard part of the space thing is you've got to escape the Earth's gravity somehow. You've got to negate it. Whereas going into the ocean, you just take a step, some weight.
1: Getting there is easy underwater. Right. Getting there is difficult in space. space. Right. I would say getting home is very difficult and scientific
0: from from depth. Right.
1: Getting home from space, you just <laughs> you fall. Just it's the fall. same as
0: getting down <laughs> so, to the ocean, right, right, ocean yeah, bottoms in, uh, in our right. diving world, yeah. And there are risks to both, yeah. No even even going down to the bottom, there are risks, just like even coming back from space, you know, burning up in the atmosphere and whatnot.
1: And uh, we, we hope to uh get to you know a couple of these other ones, but uh, in 1965, Sea Lab 2. Touched down on the sea floor at a depth of 203 feet near La Jolla, California.
0: So they pushed it nine more feet.
1: They did a uh, 30-day mission that earned Aquanaut Scott Carpenter a congratulatory phone call from Lyndon B. Johnson. Isn't he an astronaut as well? He was originally an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And he was, a, he was supposed to be on Sea Lab 1. But as the story goes... Got in a bar
0: fight. Close. <laughs> because that's how men were back then. Close.
1: Motorcycle accident, leaving oh, what sounds like okay. it was a pub. Okay, and he uh, messed himself up pretty good. Well. And then uh, in February of 1969, Sea Lab 3 was lowered to the sea bottom off of San Clemente, California, to a depth of 600 feet. Uh, when divers descended to fix a helium leak in the still unoccupied habitat, Aquanaut Barry Cannon died of carbon dioxide asphyxiation. And his death put an end to the sea lab and all of the U.S. Navy's saturation diving experiments.
0: So that was when? 1968, you That said? Was, that was 1969. Nine, okay. So does it say anything about the COMEX work, which is a French company? Because COMEX established the records for base, basically for the depth of saturation diving, as well as, I think, depth that a diver could dive, period. But they established the records for that, and... Uh, but they started working with um, hydriliox, which is hydrogen mixed with the helium mixed with oxygen, a three-gas three, three gas mixture, and then just hydrox, period. And the hydrox eliminated the HP&S. Right. Yeah. Plus, they could make it out of the water around them. Yeah, fascinating. They electrolysis, unlimited gas supply with their seawater to gas conversion methods. I guess.
1: Yeah, well, SeaLab, you know, definitely started a big project that ultimately led to many years of, you know, looking at what could happen at depth and underwater, the deepest parts of the ocean, how uh, how climates are affected, and e- new ecosystems, and really started a, a a whole new way of exploring the undersea world. You are correct, sir. Old, you are uh, correct, Old sir. Ives uh, said that it helped lead the way to a new understanding of how important oceans are to our world they're the planet's life support system and i think sea lab helped us to see that
0: so let me ask you this do you think that we as a species have a hard depth limit that we won't be able to surpass or do you think anything's possible
1: i think anything's possible i'm with you if you have the you know that you just that, that drive and that belief believe <laughs> to make it happen. I I, I think uh, I think the pressure gets very great
0: and the cost goes up so far. Yeah, it negates the ability really to that do I it mean, insanely. I don't even
1: yeah. I don't even necessarily mean just the material cost, but the physical cost. Right. Yeah. You know, but I think eventually over time, people are going to accept that cost in the drive for exploration and success. And it's going to keep going and keep going as Mm -hmm. technology climbs and who the hell knows what's going to be happening a hundred years from now.
0: Are there any, like, I think what would be interesting is, um, like viewpoints from the aquanauts, what they were thinking, how their day, you know, a daily activity list, what did they, what did they do on a day to day basis? How much time was spent diving? How much time was spent lounging around, reading? How much time was spent on research, working?
1: So they did a lot of, um, according to Ben Hellworth in his book, fish feeding, sightseeing, skinny dipping, specimen collecting, and ham radio chats to Captain Melson. It looked like undersea summer camp. He was not pleased. (laughs) <laughs> an attempt to perform the sort of useful work Melson found lacking came at the end of the first week with the arrival of Star One, a one-man submarine. The teardrop shaped mini sub brought to the support barge for an open sea test was a prototype designed to reach a sunken submarine under its own power. Star One could then attach itself to an escape hatch like the old McCann Rescue Chamber, without the need for cables or tethers to the surface. Barth and Dr. Thompson placed a dummy hatch near Sealab. lab The aquanauts were then supposed to photograph the mission and come to the sub's aid if it ran into any trouble. The mini-sub pilot, Albert Smoky Stover, was a retired Navy diver the aquanauts had known at New London. Stover was to practice landing on the dummy hatch as if for a real rescue. The Aquanauts also set up a TV camera outside Sea Lab so Captain Bond and the others in the command trailer could witness the little sub's maneuvers. The scene began to resemble the artist's rendition of an undersea future that had appeared in the American Weekly with mini subs ferrying divers around a colony on the seafloor. Here was Bond's vision as a verite. Now, Anderson had a slight fever that day, and asked Manning to take his place on a dive and shoot motion pictures while Barth and Thompson snapped away with waterproof still cameras. Anderson would stay on watch inside the lab. The three men in the water could soon hear the approaching whirr of electric motors. The sub wasn't much bigger than a Chevy van. Barth hadn't seen Smoky Stover in a year or two, but recognized him in the clear water behind the sub's hubcap sized front window. They waved at each other, and exchanged hand signals. At one point, Stover found himself unable to go forward. Barth had grabbed onto a piece of the sub, and the propeller whirred in place like an egg beater. Stover haplessly gunned the sub's electric motors as Barth and Manning giggled hard enough to flood their face masks.
0: <laughs> jocularity. Uh, jocularity
1: <laughs> and jokes. Manning ran out of film. Each magazine had only 50 feet oh he was he mad he swam back to the lab to reload making his way through the shark cage and up the entry trunk he gave the camera to anderson who then handed the reloaded camera back as manning swam the 20 yards or so back to the demonstration site and resumed filming no one noticed that bubbles had ceased to burp from the shoulder of his mark six rig a very bad sign within minutes manning suddenly swam for the lab on the TV monitor Bond could see him scurry off the screen, but Manning appeared to be going to reload his camera again, so no cause for alarm. The divers had no voice communication, so neither Bond nor anyone else could know that a crisis had begun to unfold. As Manning swam for the safety of SeaLab, he pulled the ring that hung near his tailbone to activate the bypass, a failsafe mechanism that was supposed to inject a fresh burst of gas into the Mark VI system. Nothing A former training tank instructor, a skilled breath-holding diver, Manning was not prone to panic. As he made it to the shark cage, Anderson heard a clang and put down his cup of instant coffee. He figured it must be Manning back for more film and walked over to the pool of seawater in the floor. Anderson looked down and there was Tiger Manning curled up on the seafloor as if taking a nap. Anderson jumped through the looking glass and lifted up Manning's dead weight, managing to get Manning's head high enough to reach above the waterline. When he pulled out Manning's mouthpiece, Manning bit his tongue, and so Andy stuck his index finger in his mouth to clear it. He and Manning were wedged awkwardly inside the trunk. Manning was the shortest of the aquanauts, but a good measure, stocky and muscular. And he had more than a hundred pounds of diving gear strapped to his body. As Andy struggled to loosen Manning's Mark VI, he shouted for help and rapped on the steel trunk to send an SOS to the other divers. Those watching the topside TV monitors still assumed Manning had gone for more film.
0: Is it? It's V one, not IV, right? It's VI, not IV.
1: Um. Yeah, Mark VI. Damn. Now he says so earlier in this in the book. Mm-hmm. Huller says that to the untrained eye, the new Mark Six, the Mark VI, looked pretty much like ordinary scuba, a pair of tanks worn on the back with a hose from over each shoulder that connected a mouthpiece. The most notable difference was a pair of breathing bags that hung like a May West life vest over the diver's shoulders and fastened around his chest. A canister about the size of a thermos was wedged between the tanks, bags and canister were the key components of a built-in filtering system that enabled the Mark VI to recycle a good portion of exhaled helium and unused oxygen. With ordinary scuba, all the exhaled gas, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and unused oxygen is released after each breath as a hail of bubbles in the water. The Mark VI burped out just a few bubbles from the exhaust valve near the diver's left shoulder about every third breath. The bulk of the gas, mainly helium, was routed back through the filtering system with fresh oxygen injected. The proper gas mixture could then be recirculated and rebreathed. This system conserved the expense of helium and also made the gas supply last longer. A diver could get an hour or more out of the Mark VI at 200 feet. About twice as much time as ordinary scuba, so a little, um, so it a little semi-closed rebreather system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so topside, everybody thought he'd gone for more film. Anderson gets him up on that deck, and he screams, "Breathe, breathe deep!" As he hears Tiger Manning beginning to wheeze, take all the air you can get. Hellworth goes on to say, Manning's entire face, lips too, were as blanched as a sandy sea bottom. Dr. Thompson was closest and swam over when he heard the SOS. He helped Anderson pull off Manning's Mark 6 and get him into the dry lab. Barth followed and Manning finally flopped onto the sea lab floor. By then, mercifully, he started breathing. He was weak, speaking, but not making much sense. He insisted nothing was wrong with him. Captain Bond and the topside crew, who by then had been informed of the accident, awaited the results of Dr. Thompson's checkup of Manning. Thompson soon reported that Manning's vital signs were back to normal. Manning even beat Anderson at cribbage that night. The only trace of the accident was the whites of Manning's eyes, which had turned a devilish bright red. Manning had suffered a case of face mask squeeze. Once out of breath, he was unable to equalize the pressure inside of his face mask through his nostrils. The blood vessels in his eyes then swelled up as if locked into a suction cup. I've seen eyes like those before, Captain Bob would say, but mostly they were on dead men.
0: <laughs> oh, ho, ho. I was going to say it's like the Amityville horror eyes. Look at that. There's a poster for you. It's Papa Topside.
1: Papa Topside, yes. So, um, well, hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying our little amateur researcher look into sea lab tiffany's on vacation right now so she hasn't been able to assist us in
0: our research where is she where did she go she's in the bahamas maternity leave something happened
1: but we're having fun looking into this interesting time in aquanaut history we have a couple of new reviews that came in i want to give shout outs to everybody keep those reviews coming in we're, uh, we have uh, on iTunes right now, there's 97 ratings on iTunes. We're very close to that 100 mark. And we have a couple of gifts for you. If you are uh, so inclined as to be super fans of the Great Tie Podcast and send us a five-star rating and a review that we like so much that we read on on the show, like this five-star review, great podcast from... Massassi 1311. Massassi. Massassi 1311.
0: Hmm.
1: Like a fine tequila. If you can get over the initial gag reflex, it leaves you with a warm feeling all over. <laughs> <laughs> Combines serious topics with a good bit of machismo humor. Has given me much to think about in my own diving. Well, Good. Massassi one three one one. I'm glad we're giving you some things to think about in your own diving. I hope your own diving is getting better as uh, you keep listening to our show and you keep having more fun along the way. And I hope you're strutting around in your own
0: machismo if you're a man, or enjoying machismo if you're a lady. (laughs) What if it's a man who enjoys machismo? You are.
1: That's what I'm saying.
0: Oh. I thought you said enjoying your own machismo. What if you're a lady who has machismo?
1: Anybody that has machismo, I'm saying. I know. Yeah.
0: Well, you... live it up and Listen, enjoy it. In this world of offending people these days, this offensive climate, you just offended me. No, he's saying he's giving us. No, not seconds. him. I. He's great, or she's great. Whatever that is, is great. I like that he said, or she said. I like that 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 individual said <laughs> machismo humor. <laughs> Yes, me too, so I never thought messassy one three one
1: one send us an email and remind us that uh <laughs> we read your your review online, and we got a little gift to send you another one from max amber lamps driver
0: max amber lamps driver,
1: you guys rock five stars <laughs> listening to you in the amber lamps with my main man, Dennis, you guys killing it with the sarcasm and information by amber lamps I we call that ambulance
0: we call that oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, we call that um, machismo. No, we call that sarcomation. It's, it's a, sarcasm a and information. Sark formation.
1: We are full of sarcasm.
0: Sark formation. Sark formation. Inforcasm. Inforcasm. I like that better. I like that better. Inforcasm. Hey, here's a little inforcasm for if you. You need
1: to know <laughs> your scuba inforcasm. You've tuned into the right show, the Great <laughs> Time Podcast. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Max Amberlance driver, send us a little uh, message. We got a gift for you.
0: I'm Am- oh Max Amberlance driver. We do know at Max Amberlance driver. We haven't seen him in a while though. That's true. I see him on, on the old FB there occasionally, but.
2: Well, Okay, everybody, we are going to uh, we're gonna wrap this one up for today, and um, we will see you next week with some more diving stuff, diving info. Uh, send us your dive photos, your diving pictures. Comment on uh, Dive Comments over there on our uh, Facebook page. Email us if you want to. Uh, We always love hearing from you guys. Or call James at. uh, We will uh, (laughs) see you soon. Yeah, tune in next week for more info. info Infocasm. Right? Infocasm. Infocasm. More diving infocasm. There's a shirt Uh, Bam. T-G-D-D. Your source of diving infocasm. Bam. Brilliant.
0: Terrible. But, but One learned, guy had to throw learned. out his dry suit because he pissed in it. We didn't have p valves. But you to love it. I always loved it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have to learn. I was like <laughs> was born to be in this piss
1: riddled locker room.
2: Well,